The Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like to access bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Yay! Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Which is starting to get exciting, I think. Yeah. It's like, there are people. There's people, there's conversations, it's fun. There's witch bottles. Yeah. You know, you name it. Oh my gosh, (laughs) that is still my favorite. Which, which. um, (laughs) I see what you did there. I didn't do it on purpose. Uh, We have been given permission to talk about and to use the photos. So. Huzzah. Yeah, so there will be a future witch bottle update. Awesome. So get on that Patreon. Mm -hmm. Get on it. Get in there. Join us. It's true. Because, yeah, in case I wasn't clear, one of our Patreon members has an intact witch bottle. And, and like a real one. And it's pretty awesome. And it's amazing. It is. Yeah. And we may be doing mm-hmm. a knitting group watching Natalie try to knit socks. You know? It's a thing. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's you just you need to be there. Yes, you need to you go do. to there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello. Morbid makers, we are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merely morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 1, Episode 12, Flowers, but not in the attic. No. (laughs) I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. And I'm Natalie from Uberdork Designs, an official murderino maker. Fancy, fancy. Fun, fun. Indeed. So how are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's been a week. It's been an, uh, and, and and it's been a week. (laughs) It, It has been a week. I, yeah. Supreme Court Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Yes. Uh, and it's only been a couple of days at the time that we're recording this. Yes. And, well, I'm personally really upset about it, but it has also made some sort of funny things happen in my life. I kind of forgot in all of the like grief and the ugly crying and such that I was doing that I had written a feminist cross-stitch book Mm. that has a Ruth Bader Ginsburg dissent collar design in it. It does. It does. 
And it just, it never occurred to me to use the thing that I made Mm -hmm. um, to express my sadness and to connect with other people about that. Um, Also, uh, I'm on the autism spectrum, so me talking about grief and loss is never going to sound normal. Um, But someone else posted like a photo of a project that they had done from my pattern and tagged me in it and I was utterly baffled. Oh. Because I had forgotten and I didn't write this book that long ago but it was just so not what I was thinking about at the time. I was thinking about like all of my other friends who had done projects that I could remember and things like that and you know who I needed to text immediately and all of those things that I was completely caught off guard and that makes sense that that pattern was my favorite in the book I think and is now kind of sad yeah it was I was so I was driving uh the hour and a half hour and 45 minutes um it takes to meet halfway to for the girls to see their dad and I was on the way back and my phone unbeknownst to me because I was I was cruising along listening to the podcast just you know living my life mm-hmm. and I uh, happened to glance down and see there were so many messages on my phone um, and I had actually I had pulled over into a parking lot and called uh i the first one the my friend courtney had had texted me something and it was kind of ambiguous and i was confused Mm -hmm. so and and then i freaked out because i'm like twinsy what is up and she was like you don't know she's like are you what i'm like no i'm driving like what what is going on and uh and so she was i did the same thing to my best friend so she's the one that told me and then uh and so I'm sitting in a parking lot knowing I still had at that point like 50 minutes left of my drive to try to process this information. And I was like, all right, we're going to we're going to fall back on how I was how I was raised. You're just going to shove that shit down and get to where you need to be <laughs> and then let it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got home and then I, I, I texted you right away, too, because I saw your text and Mm-hmm. and stuff and it was like and and part of me my initial response was actually somewhat warm because it was like look at all of these people that I love and respect who have in this time reached out to me so it was this it was this it was a good feeling in a way but it was still really freaking yeah devastating and there's all these things to process there's so many emotions to process in this because it's not yeah. and I think that's a really good way of putting it. That's like that is the feeling that I was intending and failing to convey. I got it. Um <laughs> but yeah. It was there's so there's a lot to unpack. And then so I sat down and I I couldn't find words. So I just mm-hmm. I drew her collar and on mm-hmm. a black background and I just the word vote above it and yes. I changed I changed my Facebook cover page and I was like I 
I'm lacking words. So I whipped this up. Yeah. And the next thing I know, like, people are using it for their avatars and their cover. And people are asking. I'm like, just freaking do it. Like, I don't even just get it out. Yeah. So... I mean, do ask. Right. Normally. I mean, it was. <laughs> I was like, I don't. I'm sobbing. I'm like, it's fine. Just Maybe use we it. should do uh, stickers for people who can prove they're registered. Ooh. I I got to post that. We have a we have a stack of stickers here. So yeah. I went through a range of emotions that night, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then, but it's a whole complex thing because not only are we mourning this loss. Mm-hmm. Of a human being who was amazing. Was she perfect? Absolutely not. There's a lot of... Um, Nobody was perfect. Right. And there's a lot of feelings about, you know, white feminism and specifics. And, you yep. know, you can you can delve deep into there. But for better or for worse, she did fight for and make changes that affect us. And was um, somebody that people looked up to that they did not have before. And... I love a lot about her. Like, as a human being, there's a loss yep. there. But then given the clusterfuck our country is, there is also a very real terror, like, terror in there because yep. of the now what. And we should never have been in a position where the weight that exists should be put on one person like it was. Yeah, the uh, responsibility of saving or maintaining the republic. right. You know, and yeah. Sotomayor is amazing, and I respect the shit out of her. And to have a Puerto Rican woman on our Supreme Court, love it, amazing, worship her. But she can't do it alone. Like, it's there's not just, you know, and that's another thing that needs to be acknowledged is that Ruth was not the only female on the Supreme Court. But there, there's a lot. There's just a lot of emotions connected to this entire thing. And there's, yeah. so you, you have to mourn on one side and then you're also bracing for the, oh my God, what is going to happen next? Yeah. And I mean, yes. I, and I don't, I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not comfortable speculating about that at the moment because I feel like when you're processing something like this, mm-hmm. that it is so easy to jump to the worst case scenario and panic right well i mean this podcast i i don't want to panic the listeners but um also i don't i don't know what's going to happen and i will be watching right to see what happens and i mean fortunately or unfortunately i guess for me i live in new york city yeah. I we know which way my state's going. My senators. Right. Like, they don't need a phone call from me. I mean, I do it anyway, but they're they're voting how I want them to. Right. Well, um, it's hard too because I had both the girls texting me because they were at my dad's. They're like, "Oh my gosh." Oh. And their dad is Republican, doesn't give a shit about RBG. So it's like they're like he's just you know they're like they can't talk to him about it and so they were like Mah. and then they're and then they give me the what's going to happen next and i think that's mm-hmm. my my statement of vote was like the we don't know what's going to happen next we need to take time to process all of this but the one thing that we can do is vote and the best best way yeah. that we can honor her, her is to step up and make sure that you yep. are making sure that changes are made, that safety nets are put in place, 
that women of all shapes, sizes, colors, religions, ethnicities, cis, non-cis, just every female is being protected, period. And so any way Mm -hmm. you can do that, whether it's donating to Planned Parenthood, obviously vote, please fucking vote. And or just early and in person. I literally just uh, I have right here. This goes to my town tomorrow. I'm walking it in there with a mask on so I don't have to worry about it getting lost in the mail. Um, Yeah. But yeah. And if any listeners need assistance registering for absentee ballot, can email me. I'll help you. Um, But yeah, anything you can do right now. The best way Mm -hmm. to process something like this is to not sit and wonder and speculate and sit in fear, but stand up and take action and go, okay, this is unknown, but I know that I can do this. Yeah. Um, And for people who do have early in-person voting, like we do in New York, um, those are votes that will be counted on election night absentee ballots won't be counted until after election mm-hmm. night um i mean they will be counted right but if if it is important to you to know that your vote is in that initial tally tally um that is probably the best possible way for us to have a visual win. Yes. Because. Um, just just putting that out there. Right. But also, we are not a politics podcast. No. <laughs> um, I mean, I imagine our politics were pretty clear. Right. Already to anybody. Yep. But let's, let's show up at the polls. Yes. Please you and know? thank you. At this point, to me, in this fight that we're in right now it's not even politics it is just about basic human rights yep period i agree so, do it vote i agree do the things yes go do the things and i mean vote anyway right no even if you don't agree with right us. i mean that's like, the thing like exercise your right yeah. make the republic work yes but right. whew, that was um it was a lot longer than I expected our intro to be. It was. But that's fine. It happens. We got to say the things. We do. And sometimes sometimes it's more important to say the thing out loud than to be sure you're not going to piss anybody off. Yep. And we we are, we listen. If there's an issue, if you have a disagreement, we will listen to what you have to say. That's oh, not yeah. a... We're open to a conversation. Absolutely. We are not the end all be all. No. No. Certainly not going to fight because I don't do that. Right. It doesn't make sense to me. Nope. But. You know who else I want to have a conversation with? Our Patreon supporters. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the most awkward of all transitions. I think you win. Awkward is my middle name. Yes. No, it's not. I just learned what your middle name is. That is true. That is true. I am am pretty much the physical embodiment of awkwardness, and I am okay with that. (laughs) I am who I am. 
Uh, <laughs> but I still would like to take a quick break and thank okay. all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon that put up with my awkwardness and shitty timing and <laughs> mispronunciations, all of that, and give a totally normal, not at all creepy, welcome to our newest members, Delia and Helen, and an oh my god shout out to Heather S., who doubled her support this week. Yes, thanks, Heather. Oh my god. You are all... <laughs> Just welcome, 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 you amazing creatures, you. Yes. We already adore you. Yes. Yes, yes. Like, even if we haven't met yet, we already know. But I think we actually have uh, already spoken to both of the new members. I rope them in quick. I, as soon as... Yeah, you do. (laughs) As soon as I see them pop up, I'm like, come hither. Come hither to the Facebook group and let me awkwardly introduce you to everyone there (laughs) 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 so yeah uh patreon supporters you're the best and we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you even though it's a bad idea absolutely absolutely yeah okay we might even take your uh botanically based medical advice yes possibly yeah we would you know what we would hunt we would hunt for weird flowers with you for sure oh Odd definitely plants. Mm-hmm. you know the like yep <laughs> i wonder what we're talking about today <laughs> Jeez. Hmm. i don't know hmm. curious there, um, curious there. yeah it, it, it's true so in in case you haven't picked up on on that, uh, today we're going to talk about two separate areas of Victorian life because we're on a Victorian kick right yeah. now, and one of them is botanical scrapbooks and seaweed hunting, which yes. is a thing I am fascinated by, um, yes. and also. The Victorian language of flowers, which is uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So, uh, yeah, like any topic, we end up picking to do a deep dive on. Uh, yeah. This one, again, uh, there's a couple different paths. Uh, the oldest traditions of making herbarium collections, which is pretty much what botanical scrapbooking is. Um, mm-hmm. they've been traced back to Italy by, like, in 1532, but screw men and their bullshit. We're, we're going the Victorian ladies route. They can have their day some other time. Let's... Well, I mean, frankly, they probably stole it from right. the local wise woman in their medieval town anyway. Right, and you'll figure that out, the connection to that, as I, uh, as I zip zip along here pretty quickly. Uh, Indeed. So I'm going to start us out with a tiny bit of, you know, first of all, what's a scrapbook? Well, scrapbooking is a method of preserving, presenting, and arranging personal and family history or other things in the form of a book, a box, or a card. Back in the 15th century, commonplace books were popular in England, and they emerged as a way to kind of compile information that included 
oh, recipes, quotations, letters, poems, and more, each commonplace book was unique to its creator's particular interests. You know, kind of like a grimoire. Huh. Right? Imagine that. Right? But these were... Imagine. Right? But these were acceptable because, you know, white people of upper class. So, uh, French... I was going to say, because class. Class. <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, so, friendship albums were popular in the 16th century, and these are kind of like modern-day yearbooks where friends or patrons would enter their names, titles, like a short little text, maybe a little illustration at the request of an album's owner. These albums were often created Hair. as right <laughs> as souvenirs of European tours, and they would contain local memorabilia, including coats of arms or works of art commissioned by local artists. Wait, wait, wait. So they're handing people their book yeah. and be like, you are a local artist. Why don't they are. you paint me a scene? Absolutely. So, cool. Which is cool I love because it. I have a ton of friends that have books like that and they take them to cons and Artist Alley and they're like, hey, uh, one of my friends has an entire Muppet theme book. So every time she goes cool. to like a con, she you know picks out the artists she wants and she pays them and commissions them to do like a Muppet in it. And I think that's amazing because it's you know it's that's really fun, right? Uh, starting in nine in 1570, it became fashionable to incorporate like colored palettes depicting popular scenes like Venetian costumes or like a carnival scene if you've witnessed that. And these provided affordable options as compared to original works. And as such, the plates were not sold to commemorate or document a specific event, but again, as embellishments for these albums. In uh, 1775, James Granger published A History of England with several blank pages at the back of the book. And these pages were specifically designed to allow the book's owner to personalize the book with their own memorabilia. So the, oh, the pr cool. prestige of pasting engravings or lithographs or other illustrations into the books or even taking books apart and then inserting new matter and rebinding them then became known as extra illustrating or grangerizing additionally friendship albums and school yearbooks afforded girls in the 18th and 19th centuries an outlet through which to share their literary skills and also allowed them an opportunity to document their own personalized historical record that was previously not readily available to them because, you know, why why would a woman want to, you know, write down who she was and what she thought? Who cares? She's a, you know, why would the future want to know? She's a lady. Uh, so, for example, yes. college women around the turn of the century used to use scrapbooks extensively to construct representations of everyday life as a student. So, without photograph albums to provide images for, like, these life events... They created unique representations uh, through, like, illustrating. They used ephemera, memorabilia, a guest list at a party, or a group of visiting cards might represent a young woman's visit to a party, or a mm -hmm. playbill, ticket stub. Shit, I still collect movie. I collected movie ticket stubs when I went on dates. Like, it's it's kind of interesting oh, yeah. to me, the things that, that I can relate to in this. But this stuff, you know, uh, will serve as a reminder to like a trip to New York or to see a Broadway show or, you know, oh, or yeah. any or. Well, I still have a box of middle school notes. Oh, yeah. Oh, same, same, same. 
somewhere. So um, mm-hmm. a page from these subject-based scrapbooks might include class schedules, exam booklets, letters from professors, or other printed materials from school events. Uh, thus, the scrapbooks from this era can create like a more complete image of their maker's life. Again, not unlike a journal or, you know, you could it could be, if they're utilizing it throughout the school year, it could be somewhat of a school grimoire. So during the 19th century, scrapbooking was seen as a more involved way to preserve one's experiencing than journaling or other writing-based forms of logging. Um, again, printed materials such as cheap newspapers, visiting cards, playbills, pamphlets, they were circulated widely like during the 19th century because paper became cheaper, printing became more mass. Um, and everybody had a calling card. Right. Uh, so they also, they, because of that, they became primary components of people's scrapbooks. And by everybody, I mean the upper class. Right. Again, this is all uppity peoples. So uh, the growing volume of ephemera of this kind, parallel to the growth of like the industrialized society, created the demand for methods of cataloging and preserving them. Again, like a grimoire. This is where mm-hmm. why scrapbooks devoted solely to cataloging <clears throat> recipes, coupons, other lists. They were super common during this time. Uh, yep. And until later in the 19th century, scrapbooks were seen as functional as well as aesthetically pleasing. Interesting. Which I would argue <laughs> right? is I... the case for certain other items right? uh, that we may have mentioned. <laughs> So interesting side note, because I love to find those. In 1872, another famous American scrapbooker, the famous author Mark Twain, invented his profitable patent invention, Mark Twain's adhesive scrapbook that contained pre-pasted pages. This invention netted him $50,000 in profits. And became wow. one of Twain's most popular books. Now, I don't know the math. That's fascinating. $50,000 in 1872? That must have been a huge... Cause I'm looking at fifty grand now saying that... Psh, give it to me. That's life-changing. But in 1872, that seems pretty pretty impressive. But yeah, I thought that was pretty freaking cool. Like, yeah. I did not know that Mark Twain liked a scrapbook. Uh, one current dollar... In 1872 is valued at uh, $265. Whoa! That's lots of monies. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I am completely reading that wrong. Ooh. Fire <laughs> truck. Oh, no. Going by. Um, never mind. I, it's lots of money. I am looking at coin collections, not... Uh, well... I mean, that, that $265 is what a Liberty Dollar from okay. 1872 is worth. So listeners, so if you have one of those, yeah. um, <laughs> But also not at all correct. Sorry, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I'm going to shut up about things I don't know about. It's fine. It's fine. I tried. Ace effort. So also during this 19th century, around the middle of it, Flower pressing emerged as one of the most popular pastimes for Victorian middle and upper class women. Again, this is a class thing. Uh, With plenty of time on their precious little hands and no lack of resources, they sought to explore their artistic side in unique ways. 
Also, though, they wishing to be part of the skyrocketing craze for natural history at that time, yet restricted by the virtue of their sex. Many women found the art of identifying and collecting plant specimens to be a respectable way of examining the natural world, improving their scientific knowledge, and preserving the beauty around them. It became an acceptable way for women to merge the natural world with the domestic one. Respect for nature was viewed as a Christian road to God, and a woman given to this pastime would pride herself on her herbarium or collection of flora. I was like this. As she should. Right? I was like this week's years old when I started looking at pressed flowers as early bucking of the patriarchy. And I can kind of totally get behind that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it it very much was. Right? Which I never would have. I never would have thought. So now women also pressed flowers for sentimental and romantic reasons. The flora pressed into a book or album served as a remembrance of a particular person or event, or even in a scrapbook as part of a travel log. Another fun fact. Uh, yes. One well-known herbarium maker was the poet Emily Dickinson. She that I knew was mm-hmm. all about her herbarium, and she wrote all her friends about it. She was super proud. It's true. She wanted everybody to do it. Yep. And I, again, can get behind that. Seems pretty cool. When I have a real answer now. Yay! What is that real answer? Okay. $100 in 1872 uh-huh. was equivalent to $2,130.48 today. So that $50,000 that Mark Twain made was $1,065,240. Damn! That's a lot. Yep off of a actually a scrapbook so he like didn't even have anything in it it was just the fact that they were pre-pasted pages yeah that's amazing i mean if you've ever been to a crafting conference and have been in the scrapbooking section (laughs) oh boy the things people will pay good money for is amazing um i have to say scrapbooking is like the one craft I have never and probably will never get into. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't. It just, it hasn't hit me in the way like 99% of the other crafts have. Uh, But I think I'm just super intimidated by it. Like it just blew up huge. And once you come rolling in with a cart like full of papers and stuff, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know any of that. But I mean, I have a makeshift scrap book of things that I actually just found some empty scrapbooks that I think I may transfer all of that stuff into. It's basically a three ring binder with a bunch of um, page protectors or uh, like baseball card holders. Yeah. And yeah it's just a mess (laughs) and i'm sure that there's stuff that i don't need in there and stuff that i would like to remember in there and um but no i'm i'm not interested in uh, i can't say that i'm not interested in making it pretty because i tend to like do that but i'm not interested in embellishing yes yes see i there's i think there's we are grimrar categorizing like 
librarian minded yeah. in a creative fashion versus but, and grimoires are pretty much the same thing as scrapbooks and we would adorn those right but there's like a yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's, hard even, it's hard to even describe the difference. Because... I think it's a usefulness. Yes. Like it's um, something intended to be used versus something intended to function yes. as a remembrance or something beautiful for the sake of being beautiful or beautiful for the sake of showing other people. Right. Which is a completely great thing to do. And I absolutely like i flipped through my grandma's scrapbook yep last time i was in town and she had like party invitations from from the 40s and it was it was neat and i really enjoyed looking through her scrapbook i still don't want necessarily want to make one right i get it i totally get it yeah i don't know Anyway, sorry, that was a tangent. No need to apologize. So these flowers. Yeah. So we've covered, let's see, we've got what scrapbooking is. Now we're talking about, like, how. Like, how did they, how did they make these? So Yeats. in order to maintain the freshness and vibrant colors of the florals, they would purchase a wooden field press. And again, remember, these were, you know, middle to upper class gals. So, um... They had the means. Most of us people, we'd be like, hi, we're going to stick this in the Bible and flatten that shit between two pieces of paper because that's what we can afford. Uh, It's actually very easy and very cheap to make a wooden press. Just for the... mm -hmm. Um, Previous two episodes of the Very Serious Crafts (laughs) podcast, (laughs) um, I I went over these things and a plant biologist weighed in. Oh, no! That's so that screams um, that I'm behind. <laughs> How am I that far oh, behind? I think I don't think the most recent one has come out. Oh, okay. I was like, How am I that far behind? Uh so you may just be one behind. But um yeah. So anyway, um it's there are ways to do it and a lot of the details happen to exist in my other podcast because awesome. this is a rabbit hole that I fell down into separate areas of my life. Nice. So check out Very Serious Crafts podcast. It's amazing. Yeah, it's I will add it to the. I will add links to the show notes. Anyway, not to nice. uh, derail our podcast not- for my other <laughs> podcast. It's not derailing. It's an addendum. <laughs> Thank you. So, Um, many stationers caught on pretty quickly uh, to the popularity of this hobby, and then they totally rushed to stock presses, paper, glue, pretty much the supplies needed to do this. And though, for those who desired to learn the craft, popular magazines started publishing instructions, especially in the fall because of the brilliant colors of the autumn foliage, which is super inspiring. And you got to go, you know, it's fall. It's fall. Mm-hmm. Get, your, get your leaf viewing on. Um, indeed. Picking flowers. And there are ways to preserve them while preserving the colors. Indeed. Uh, picking flowers late in the afternoon. Uh, ensures all Mm -hmm. the dew has dried. Uh, They then place them between sheets of blotting paper and press with a crank or straps 
to tighten and flatten the specimen. Once dried, the flowers were glued, sewn, or attached onto paper, which was plentiful at this time and expensive thanks to the Industrial Revolution, with silk, velvet, or other fabric. Many were kept in a scrapbook. Framed under glass was also a popular way of exhibiting the work, or the flowers could be pressed between the pages of a beloved book or family Bible. This was all very lovely, but I mm-hmm. want to go a little bit more badass, and I want to talk about seaweed hunters. Oh, my God. I totally put those two fucking words together, and it is a thing. So, it, it, And it is, it too. Is, it is, and I, I am yeah, I am all about it. So it's still the mid-19th yeah. century, and you're chilling at the beach in Britain with your family and your friends, and you look over, and you see an odd-looking lady. She's got all her wood mm-hmm. wool petticoats on. She's got a heavy bucket and <gasps> clutch of pearls. She has men's boots on. <gasps> that amazing weirdo is a seaweed hunter. It's true. <laughs> they existed in upstate New York, yep. too. Uh, there's a whole American one for... There, in the show notes, there's a whole American story of the American seaweed hunters versus uh, the Victorian British ones I'm speaking of now. So check that out. I but, think like, the one, the American one that you linked to, I've seen in person. <gasps> Golly. So as yeah, I mentioned. Both the herbarium and the seaweed book. Oh, that's amazing. So yeah. 19th century bitten, total hotbed of bio- uh, biological enthusiasm. Natural <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, or, or didn't say. <laughs> That's what she sent flowers that said. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't that was wonderful. Uh, I think I'm going to write that down for a future merge. Uh, so natural, <laughs> natural history was absolutely huge, says Dr. Stephen Hunt, a researcher in environmental humanities who works at the University of the West of England. Households filled up with painstakingly stuffed mammals and birds, which is a whole nother episode I cannot wait to get to. So-called gentlemen (laughs) scientists traveled the world drawing, describing, and collecting plants and animals. As gentlemen natural scientists (laughs) are... Uh, well, gentlemen Egyptologists also, like, they're in a group, like, they're just boys in a clubhouse. Right. And I think that is so funny. Right. Uh, so as railway networks grew and labor advances led to more leisure time, ordinary scientists got in, on, or citizens got in on the trend. So, meaning the not-so-wealthy people. Uh, hmm. Microscopes became more affordable. And collecting clubs, like you said, popped up across Britain. Uh, It was a cross-class, to some extent, working-class and middle-class as Hunt. There was a a democratization of natural history, he says. Yeah. Cool. Democratization, of course, that excluded women. Because fucking patriarchy. The... Well, it also excluded poor people. Well, true. So the biggest natural <laughs> history clubs of all, the Royal Society and the Linnean Society, refused female members and barred women even from their public meetings. Hunting animals was too dangerous. And digging up plants oh, was... Oh, nose. Digging up... This is my favorite. Digging up plants was too sexy. 
There was what? A, yep. There was a because tab- they're bending over. Nope. There was a taboo on botany because Linnaean botany was based on the sexual parts. Says Hunt. Therefore, it was seen as <laughs> controversial. So, <laughs> I would just like to point out, it is based majority on female parts. Like, our own fucking parts. Like, we can look down and see that. Just saying. Oh, I, but... Yep. Uh, the thing is, women also at the time were known to design great or to not design themselves but to have great gardens designed and also kitchen gardens like it um i and and their morality seems to have largely survived intact this is what i'm saying uh i mean i don't think she's eyeing that carrot right (laughs) well So our flower processors skirted it as they were just seen as wistful women gluing pretty sentimental pictures. Enter. Well, they weren't digging up the plant. Right. <laughs> so. Of all the things too sexy to, to think of like repotting a plant being a sexual activity. <laughs> and <laughs> you scoop that dirt, just, baby. Scoop it. Oh, it's, oh, stick your hands right, right? In there. You're a dirty girl. Um. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, gosh. So enter yes. seaweed. Docile. She rated <laughs> and available somewhat close to home. It was accessible to, for women in ways that other things weren't, says Hunt. As the seashore itself gained a reputation as a restorative landscape, plenty of women found themselves there either recuperating from illness, you know, the vapors, or seeking family-friendly summer fun. So many of them were already diehard scrapbookers, and seaweed makes a particularly rewarding collage subject. Not only does each specimen's, specimen's strange color and shape present a design challenge, its gelatinous inner structure means that when pressed onto paper, it actually glues itself to the page. So while it's unclear exactly how many women spent their Saturdays kelp crafting, there are enough amateur seaweed scrapbooks floating around indicate that it was a pretty popular pursuit. There's even... And it, it was published. Yes, yes. Like, there were... Absolutely. Uh, Mm There is even one famous long-lost scrapbook, Queen Victoria's, which she reportedly made as a young woman, and George Eliot has hinted that she dabbled at it too, writing in an 1856 journal entry that the tide pools on the shores of Ithracombe made me quite in love with seaweeds. A number of collectors took their hobby to the next level, publishing descriptive guides complete with illustrations and collecting tips. Which brings cool. me to Miss Margaret Getty, one of the best-known seaweeders. Now, Margaret was a children's book author who took up the hobby while she was convalescing from some pregnancy complications in the coastal town of Hastings, which is on Britain's southeast coast, in 1848. She felt super restless without like her usual responsibilities, and she became fascinated by Dr. William Harvey's book, 
Phycologia Britannica, which documented British seaweeds as well as zoophytes. Uh, she began... Cool. Yeah, right. I love zoophytes. She began spending days at the coast, attaching scientific names to the seaweed that she observed, and then making detailed notes. Gaddy's crowning work of algology, British Seaweeds, is an exhaustive compilation of local seaweeds, fully described and illustrated in 86 colored pal- er, plates. Wow. But it's also a primer for women who might have want- been wondering how to align their exciting new hobby with the conventions of the time. In the opening yep. section on how to dress, Gaddy endorses a compromise <laughs> between practicality and social acceptability. Wear your regular outdoor ensemble, petticoats and all on top, she suggests. They are necessary draperies. But definitely, oh. definitely go for men's boots and own it. Feel all the luxury of not having to be afraid of your boots, she writes. Feel all the comfort of walking steadily forward. The very strength of the souls making you tread firm. I dig you, Margaret. You're especially... Yeah. Exceptionally... I never want to wear stupid heeled boots again. Right? And it's exceptionally bold for the town vicar's wife. How did she manage this at such a time where she was expected to let nothing come between her duty to serve as the moral center of her family? Well, Margaret Gaddy's particular genius was that she insulated her newfound scientific interest into family life. Her children Mm. helped sort and identify seaweeds, as well as accompanied her during what became frequent visits to the seashore. And her husband, Alfred, happily negotiated logistics with her publisher because you know interesting because women can't do that it had to be the man but when publicly discussing her scientific work gaddy couched her science writing as a means to support her family with 10 Mm -hmm. children this certainly had merit but the fact that was that gaddy found great intellectual satisfaction from her discovery she just was smart enough to figure out how to work it into her life and frame it in a way that made it seem acceptable. And her right. work is amazing. It's just beautiful. Like, I'm not huge into pressed flowers, but I love the pressed seaweed. Like, the seaweed is it's just amazing. Like, I, it's given me ideas. So, yeah. During her life, Gaddy clearly marched her seaweed hiking boots to the pinnacle of algae studies in Britain, and she did so with confidence and intelligence while maintaining her family and social role and a culturally obsessed with gender norms and all. So that is my jaunt through botanical scrapbooking and seaweed hunting, which just the very name, just the word seaweed hunting make me happy. Yeah. I had no idea that seaweed hunting was even a thing before I attended a lecture, you know, from my computer. Uh, (laughs) A couple, like, I don't know, two months ago or something. Mm. And I was like, what? Yeah. What? Because I just remember being a kid and touching seaweed and or having seaweed touch me 
in the in a lake and being like nope 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 especially midwestern nope. lakes also, and no. like it feels your yeah. t- like when you're in there you, you feel your toes on it you're like what is it is it a fish or is it seaweed is it a fish or seaweed like what is it yep and if it's seaweed you're probably out too far right <laughs> Very true, very true. Yes, and Lord knows what's down there because rural Midwest. Yes, there's a whole bunch of stuff underneath Lake Michigan, man. <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff underneath most Midwestern lakes, I would say. Indeed. Oh, man. Yeah, Lake Michigan. Well, in, at least in Lake Superior, you can see them. That's true. You can just look down. Yeah, <laughs> very true. Yeah, like Michigan, not so much. So yeah, good times. You can. Oh, that's cool. Check out how to do your own. There's some instructions in the show notes, uh, and there are uh, in further reading. There's uh, I had to fight very hard to not go down the um, herbariums that exist uh, around the world and their collections and uh, i feel a patreon episode coming on absolutely there's uh there is one in particular which is where was it brain work uh it's like the royal i think it's the royal garden yep Mm -hmm. royal botanical guardians gardens herbarium awesome well so now that you have talked about the collecting of specimens, I am going to dip my toe into the world of the Victorian language of flowers, which is a whole different ridiculous thing. (laughs) And I actually did not find where the two might overlap. Um, Although I do think that probably uh, messages sent via flower may have ended up in scrapbooks. That's the connection but, I would make. Now I'm thinking, yeah. now I'm wondering what kind of, because there's got to be more than just, hi, I love you and you make my heart fitter footer messages. <laughs> oh, like you can send death threats. Like, <laughs> yes. The whole thing. So... The Victorian language of flowers is also called floriography. Oh, that's a good word. Which makes sense. Yeah. Floriography. Yes, it's very fancy. Um, And the language, or the coded language, first appeared in 1819 with the publication of Les Langages des Fleurs by... Charlotte de la Tour. And I looked that up. That's wonderful. Just for the record. (laughs) Um, Which was basically a book of flowers with engravings with descriptions of meanings. I mean, it's exactly what you think it would be. Okay. But I am deeply unclear about. Why? <laughs> Who ordered this? Um, like, hmm? Uh, but whatever. Um, so once that publication came out in France, mm-hmm. the 
whole idea of using this language of flowers to send messages, especially emotional messages, that mm-hmm. weren't appropriate to display in public at the time, um, really, really took off um, and was adapted by both British and American um, upper class women. Mm. And so I sort of think of sending coded messages by flowers in almost a similar way as a woman wearing mourning attire. Ah. Um, So it's like a visual message that you can send about a very emotional subject and people would understand without discussion what it meant i can kind of like, get you behind had that. suffered a loss right and you don't um, have to figure out the wording yourself or even yeah. no no and so because it was adapted very quickly and very widely um it became sort of an obsession of young victorian women largely although young Victorian men would also send these messages and presumably women would send them to women and men would send them to men but we don't speak about those things in Victorian England no we do not no no um so but I like that thought yeah I like the thought of a little secret oh and I'm sure it happened yes me too um Matter of fact, I, I do believe that there's a romance novel somewhere on my Kindle that is more or less that. Um, I like it. Yeah. So before I go any further, um, I should definitely mention that when we're talking about symbolism and the symbolism of flowers, um, we're talking specifically about the symbolism as observed largely by, as I said, upper-class young women in the U.S. and England in the 19th century. Um, But it should be noted that many other cultures have assigned symbolism to different flowers, but I'm specifically talking about um, 19th century England and the U.S. Duly noted. Yes, because, oh man. Yeah. Oh man, there would have been a a lot. All right, so you may be wondering, like I was wondering, where the meanings for the flowers came from? Like, why would you assign a meaning to a flower? I I mean, some of them are kind of obvious, but um, it seems to me that this whole thing started out largely in that initial uh, Le Langage des Fleurs that I mentioned at the beginning, that this woman, Charlotte, who wrote it, it seems to just be largely based on what she decided at the time, like what she felt like. <laughs> so like she's Regina George. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's, yes. 
And so I actually found a translation of this original book. Ooh. And it gets real out there. Like, think Luna Lovegood. Oh, I um, love Luna! <laughs> yeah, me too. Ravenclaw. But, uh, so... This is from the introduction, and keep in mind this is a translation. I do not speak French or read it very well. So, um, when nature laughs out in all the triumph of spring, it may be said without a metaphor that in her thousand varieties of flowers, we see the sweetest of her smiles, that through them, we comprehend the exaltation of her joys and that by them she wafts her song song not thong <laughs> of thanksgiving to the heaven above her that repays her tribute of gratitude with looks of love yes flowers have yet pleasing links of intelligence that bind soul to soul in the tender and quiet harmony of the one or in more impassioned felicity of the other. Wow. Now, I have a degree in literature. <laughs> so when she and says without metaphor. And I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. <laughs> and also, flowers are metaphors. <laughs> without metaphor, as I unfurl like, 90 of them. <laughs> yes. All I'm saying... Is um, my comparative lit degree says what are you talking about, lady? What the fuck? And the introduction, yeah, just goes on (laughs) from there and continues to become more bizarre. Oh boy! And tells a story about hanging out with milkmaids, and it's a whole weird. It's a thing. Um, I will link to the full book because you can read it for free because it is definitely out of copyright (laughs) um but man it's it's an adventure um and maybe it makes more sense in the original french it's possible that the translator was trying to make it pretty and just made it weird but uh, that seems it would like be pretty my, consistent. That seems like my entire being. I try to make it pretty, but I just make it weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so it seems to me that... All of the meanings assigned in Charlotte's book were based either on her opinions or random tales from mythology and what have you. So super scientific. So, uh, <laughs> well, but kind of. Oh, okay. So an example is uh, uh, lilacs. <gasps> Those are my favorite. Yeah, mine too. Um, well, they are my favorite scent. My favorite flower is hellebore. But... That does not matter. (laughs) It might matter later, though. Um, So, lilac, the first emotion of love. Okay. Quote, the lilac has been consecrated 
to the first emotions of love, because nothing possesses a greater charm than the delight afforded by its appearance on the return of spring. All right, I'm going with her here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she continues, Indeed, the freshness of its venture, the flexibility of its branches, the profusion of its flowers, their short and transitory beauty, their soft and variegated hues, all recall those celestial emotions which embellish beauty and lend to youth its grace divine. Who hurt you, Charlotte? Right, consecrated is an interesting choice. Well, also, also like, they smell really fucking good. Like, yeah, they're yeah. pretty, but how could you not be like transitory? Uh. Like, but I, I, I get we're we're fading. Like, get all darling buds of May <laughs> in here. But <sighs> yeah, so that is just an example of one of her descriptions to have a little feel for for where this is headed also um you if you show up with a bouquet of lilacs for me i will fall in love like that's i get that i will fall i'll be like i i love you because now i don't have to sneak up on somebody's bushes with my scissors and perform botanical thievery like i do every year to you know obtain one but yeah Fun fact about lilacs, which I was not going to mention, but now I'm going to. Uh, Do you know why they're often planted around the edges of properties, especially rural ones? They are, aren't they? Yeah. I just thought they made, like, a good border because they're bushy and they're pretty. They are, but they also smell very strongly. Yes. And so, when it came time to move the outhouse... Oh, dear. (laughs) You would plant a lilac bush to um, overcome. (laughs) That... Uh, You also might plant it over, say, a stillborn child. Oh, Or... The pet cemetery. Some such. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, anyway... Um, Still love them. Lilacs. <laughs> super romantic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They've been consecrated um, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> They've been consecrated by something. <laughs> anyway, the meanings that Charlotte laid out in her book referenced many things, like I've said, including legend, mythology, literature, religion, and... Somewhat mysteriously to me, the price of tulips in Holland from 1644 to 1647. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. It's like, I'll be fucking specific. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was presented in an everybody knows right, that. the going rate for tulips in Holland. And yeah, it- and this wasn't in 1644. I mean, th- this was definitely a book that was in 1819 so whatever so she was not even okay right right. school school yeah um that one's on tulips obviously if 
you feel the need to take a dive into that. Tulips are pretty. Um, I dig a tulip. I like the basic. They are. Basic. But well, the bright. mythology around tulips and the meanings are interesting. But anyway, we'll, we may visit that later. I can't remember <laughs> if that's one of them I've bookmarked. Um, so sometimes the shape of the flower itself would decide its meaning, um, which may harken back to why women weren't allowed in public <laughs> meetings. <laughs> They're too sexy. <laughs> yes, yeah, too sexy. Um, and also sometimes florists would literally just make up a meaning because they had new flowers in their shops. Right? That's some marketing right there. Yeah. So... There were, by the time the use of this code was in full swing, there were lots of different guidebooks with different meanings. (laughs) Some of them matched up. Some of them didn't. Some of them were probably, like, regional in-jokes. Like, I'm sure that sometimes these messages were deeply confusing. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah. So, at its height and popularity in the 19th century, nearly all homes of means would have likely had a, well, what I would think of as a flower dictionary. Um, but they wouldn't have agreed upon the meanings. (laughs) And, I mean, some of them would, probably, but... I feel like that could just get real exciting real fast. Right, especially if you then didn't like be like, here's that you wrap a little ribbon around your bouquet and then be like. Oh, ribbons. It's a whole different thing. (laughs) And then just be like, per Charlotte's book, this is for you. (laughs) Yeah. Like, where's the decoder ring? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, ribbons. how they were presented, in which order the flower... I'll get there. Um, Okay, so... If you were trying to send a floral message, you would have multiple choices at your disposal at the time. So you could send a bouquet to your beloved or the target of your ire, if that were true. Um, Which could be delivered in whatever way you specified. Or you could wear a flower in your hair or maybe on your dress to express something specific. Um, You could carry or be gifted something called a tussie mussy. (gasps) Tussie mussies. Yes, um, which was a small bouquet of flowers wrapped in a doily, um, like you do, and, or you might wear them as nosegays, which, as you might expect, were, like, corsages, basically, worn near the nose because Victorian times smelled bad. Yeah, they were stinky. Yeah. So, uh, presentation mattered when you were talking about the meaning of a given flower or a given group of flowers. So if the either tussie mussy or bouquet was 
given to you in an upside down manner. Oh. The bouquet's meaning should be interpreted in the opposite way of the normal. So it's like drawing a tarot card reversed. That's that's exactly what I thought of. Also yep. how incredibly fucking awkward. Right. Um like, it you... gets worse. Um Oh boy. So Wilted Flowers also sent a message, which I think is yeah. probably quite self-explanatory. <laughs> so Ribbons. Some sound like the original, bless your heart. <laughs> like, you really mean, fuck you. Here's some pretty flowers. Oh, yes. Bitch. The Victorian times were really brilliant at this sort of thing. Master um, passive aggressor. <laughs> yes. Uh, so... The color of the ribbon and the position of it on the bouquet could also impart meaning, as could whether or not it was silk or velvet, um, if it was paired with different varieties of flowers, the season. Um, the position of each flower within the bouquet could also have meaning, and if a potential suitor gave his crush a tussy-mussy, he would have to wait and see if she held the bouquet close to her heart. If she did, it was a sign of happiness or saying yes to whatever implied question (laughs) was in the flower. And if she held it pointing down, it was a rejection. Um... So can you imagine just being like poof and turning it upside down like eh? Like, yeah. And so uh, there's an entirely different rabbit hole that one could fall down just talking about what each color of rose meant or the yes. symbolism in plants that came in different colors or what the colors could mean at all. All I remember um, is like yellow roses are friendship and red roses are love. And I remember once I got a bouquet that was literally 12 yellow roses and 12 red roses. And I was like, you need oh to dear. pick a lane because I don't know what this means. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so there handily just came. Wait, that wasn't going to come out in the correct order. Um, Handily, a book called Floriography just came out, and that is by, oh dear, uh, Jessica Rue. And it is a collection um, of really beautiful botanical illustrations along with their meanings and suggested combinations of meanings if you paired them with different things. And that just came out this past month. And so I got it. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty amazing. So I'm going good. to I'm going to read you a few highlights of of the meanings. All right, so asphodel means my regrets follow you to the grave. Ooh. Right? 
<laughs> and in this book is also included the origin of that meaning or the presumed origin of the meaning. Um, so this one in Greek mythology, asphodels grew in the underworld and were consumed by the dead. And um, Homer's Odyssey shaped the idea of asphodel as a flower of regret, referring to the asphodel meadows as a section of the underworld where neither good nor evil souls resided. So a type of ghostly purgatory. And so to send a message with asphodel, you could pair it with cypress or marigold to indicate mourning and despair, or with rosemary to indicate eternal remembrance. Oh. So that's kind of how these work in combinations. So uh, another one that I found interesting and surprising is basil. Okay. Uh, which means, and these, they say it's language of flowers, but it's really the language of plants or even fruits things that flower basil flowers but this is referring to the plant basil not necessarily the bloom um basil means hate what (laughs) like i wow (laughs) yeah it involves a basilisk like it's a whole thing basil's Um, tasty and right? versatile. Like, I would pitch in and, something more yeah. thorny. <laughs> and if you pair it with lavender, uh-huh. it means betrayal. <gasps> yeah. And oleander is, if, if you pair basil and oleander, it's as a warning to someone you distrust. <laughs> so, oh. like, y- yes, it, it, it's amazing. Mom, Belladonna. why are you growing oleander? Don't ask. Just grow it. <laughs> Belladonna. Yes. Means silence. <laughs> That's kind of appropriate. Like that, so Belladonna, if you don't know, it's also called deadly nightshade. And yes. it's one of the most toxic plants on earth. It is. Um, and they're... Uh, it, it's a whole thing involving goddesses and fates and cutting the life threads of mortals. Oof. Like, it's um, actual Latin name. Okay. Is where, um, it, which is Atropa Belladonna, is where the Greek uh, goddess comes in. But I just thought the meaning is funny because most of us know what right. the nightshade is. Um, and fun. if you pair it with columbine and begonia, it will urge someone to keep a secret. Oh. I'm not sure how gentle that right. urge That's is. That's not a friendly Yes. Match. That's um, a, I will cut you. <laughs> yeah. Or if you put belladonna and rue together, it will warn the recipient to keep quiet lest they regret it. <laughs> That's it. From now on, <laughs> I'm sending flowers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, cornflower is a little brighter, um, and it means hope in love. Aww. But they're Victorian, so they couldn't just be chill about it. No, of course not. So um, it's also called the bachelor's button, 
and there is folklore surrounding it that um, if a young man is wearing this flower when he's in love, if the flower dies quickly, it means his adoration is unrequited. Oh. Uh, if it maintains its bloom, there is hope that the young man's love will be returned. Oh. And I like this one because it's one of the few very specific to, like, dudes wearing right. it as a thing that I found. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I liked that. I do ridiculousness. Um, let's see. Uh, moving in a witchier direction. Yay. Dandelions. Yeah. Uh, divination and fortune telling ah. is the symbolism of a dandelion. And I'm sure we've all heard of dandelion tea mm-hmm. and such. Um, but if you want to... Actually, you you can do this in a matter of days, mm. um, or I guess maybe slightly after this episode comes out. No, I don't think so. I think it's going to be when it actually is out. Anyway, you can pair it with ferns for a magical solstice celebration. Nice. Oh, wait, we're coming up on an equinox, not a solstice. Never mm. mind. Save that. Duly noting. Um, yeah, save that for the winter solstice. Or you could pair it with foxglove and holly to indicate the ability to solve future problems. Huh. So I thought that was neat. I had no idea that dandelion would do that. Right. Um, I also never so thought of pairing it with dog- holly. Right? Well, there are a lot of weird pairings. And I was like, I don't even know that. Not even that, in that season would smell or look good. <laughs> I don't know. But at this time, this is when, like, the massive conservatories mm-hmm. and glass greenhouses were being built. Oh, my God. Built. They're so beautiful. So, right? Um, Have you ever, like, stumbled down the abandoned ones? Have you ever, ever? Yes. There is one in our stories on our Instagram. Yes right now uh anyway so dogwood means our love will overcome adversity go dogwood i don't know why <laughs> like I, I can't say that 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 i look at dogwood and think no oh. not particularly but uh my favorite combination with dogwood is that you can pair it with hellebore for strength to overcome scandal. Oh. So I guess if you, like, get caught doing it, <laughs> um, you're going to send your lady friend some dogwood and hellebore to be like, sorry, um, it's going to be fine. We're going to get married. <laughs> or, so or something. You can cover up that yes. picky with concealer. It'll be fine. <laughs> well, you could cover it up with... Um, Lead. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> so, ferns. Ferns mean magic or secrecy. I like, ma- I, I can see ferns meaning me- magic. Like, yeah. Uh, so, if you pair it with foxglove, 
I don't know why we're pairing a lot of things with foxglove, but foxglove is a bad idea, right. for the record. Um, you can pair it with foxglove for a secret love, or <laughs> with poppies to show the recipient that you think of them in your dreams, <laughs> which honestly, that is pretty I was going to say, if anything's, uh, yeah, that yeah. poppy's going to induce something. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of foxglove, mm-hmm. which you may also know as digitalis, yes. um, which is uh, a poison slash medicine sometimes, um, means riddles and secrets. Okay. Apparently in British folklore, um, foxglove was originally called that because the fae were said to hide within its blooms and children who wished to see the fairies and hear their riddles would peer inside these flowers. Um, I'm guessing the fox part of that is like foxes being clever. Huh. Uh, I, I'm not really Between sure. Between fae and um, foxes? My money's on the fae. Oh, my money's always on the Fae. Yes, indeed. Don't you don't mess don't with the Fae. Don't fuck with the Fae. No, no, no. They're they're great. Um, Foxglove, however, is thought to be bad luck if you pick it because it's robbing the fairies of their homes. Um, and this rumor was probably started to keep children from touching this very poisonous right. plant. Yes, and so, if you pair it with lavender, you can warn a friend of an unfaithful love. So, uh, you spy somebody with their side chick, you best be sending off some fox love and lavender. That one's going to come in handy Um, later, because it's so much easier than having to be like, hey, I love you, but your boo thing is doing you dirty. Mm Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, Speaking of which, actually, if you pair it with hyacinth, it's to ask forgiveness for divulging a secret. (laughs) Uh, All right. There's just a few more that I thought were funny. So hellebore, because hellebore is my favorite, means we shall overcome scandal and slander. Yes. That I just thought was funny. It is fun. Um, that's not what I think of when I see no. hellebore. Although it is a winter-blooming flower, which... So it's hardy. ...overcomes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although I did manage to kill of... some hellebore Ooh. this summer. And I have a very green thumb. I'm unclear what happened there. I think we could so. all use a lot of hellebore right now. Yeah. And so there are a bunch of... Things that mean death. Um, hemlock is one of them. Appropriate, appropriate. Yes. And lavender, weirdly enough, wow. means distrust. I don't... Um, huh. Which I guess has to do with them being in hot climates where venomous snakes lived. Wow. Like, that seems to be quite a reach for me. That is. Um, yeah. So Lemon if you pair it, comforting. yeah, 
So if you pair it with foxglove, it's to encourage a friend to reconsider their choices. <laughs> As I take um, notes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and if you pair it with datura, you can tell someone that you see through their facade. <laughs> so, so, so that's fun. Um, poppies, speaking of, of death, um, mean eternal sleep. Yes, poppies, um, poppies. For reasons very clear. Yes. If you pair it with a dahlia, mm. it can mark the grave of a cherished companion. Hmm. There are way sketchier uses, I think, for the poppy than yes. are listed here. But, you know, whatevs. You do you. Um, I kind of want to see this all make a comeback now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, snapdragons. I love snapdragons. Me too, and when they go to seed, they look like little skulls. They do, they do. Fairy skulls. Snapdragons were a staple in my mom's garden growing up. Mine too, and my mom still cannot handle it. If we go anywhere, like with a greenhouse, Mm -hmm. she will find the snapdragons, bring one (laughs) over to me, squeeze it, and go, roar! (laughs) I love that. Yes. That's Um, amazing. Also, my mom's adorable. So, snapdragons. Presumption. Uh, And I like the reason behind this, which um, it may derive from a medieval fashion practice wherein maidens would wear snapdragons in their hair to show that they were not interested in unsolicited attention from men. We need to bring that back. And so the flower warned young men against presumption, subtly and elegantly. Crowns. Crowns of snapdragons for everyone. Yes. And so the last one I will say, because there there are hundreds of these, and there's no way to give a really good overview of them, so I just picked some that I thought were funny. I'm just adding this book um, to my list. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Um, wormwood. Wormwood. Means, yes, means bitterness. Okay. And if you pair it with belladonna, it's to tell a friend you'll give them space. Okay. Now, people may or may not know that wormwood is um, the green fairy aspect yes, in absence. It is indeed. It, it's the hallucinogenic property. Um, I knew that. Apparently, I I learned something when I was reading this, Mm -hmm. that throughout the Bible, wormwood is mentioned several times and always in connection to bitterness. But in the book of Revelation, it is written that a star called wormwood will fall from the sky and turn a third of all water bitter. Huh. I mean, a star falling from the sky turning a third of all of Earth's water into absinthe would be quite something. That would. That'd be kind of a party. It would be a brief party. Yes. But it would be a party. Yes. Yeah. And so... Let's not taunt 2020. (laughs) No, no. We're we're leaving it. Um, (laughs) The Wormwood asteroid can just not, please. 
All right, so we could spend hours and hours and hours looking through this. I highly recommend that you check out the book, Floriography. There will be a link, obviously, in the show notes. Um, and most of those meanings that I just gave you were meanings that were um, compiled in the research for that book. So, you may be wondering, but, like, why? Why, why would you do this? Why, <laughs> why would you create an entire coded language of flowers? And I assume that part of it is women of means weren't allowed to do many things right. that we might deem productive or interesting. So that creative energy had to go somewhere, much like the herbariums and seaweed collecting. Yes. Um, I would also argue that it was to avoid death by sexual tension. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and also possibly because your mom would think that your death threat that you just sent was really beautiful and kind. <laughs> so I could not find very much information. Like most of the references to these two flowers being used in this way were talking about young people. Yeah. Like of like pubescent young people. Which makes sense. Generally either pre or just after being married. And so I'm not sure. Uh, there's very little mention of if, like, your parents would yeah. would see, like, this bouquet and be like, mm, you're, you're getting it on or doing a thing or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure. Sure. I'm guessing it was if probably they would more have like a secret known. language. But well, then again, I, well, what, I mean, do you walk into like a florist and be like, I'll take one fuck you special, one crown of snapdragons, and uh, hey, you're kind of cute package. <laughs> like, oh, well, yeah. How, <laughs> and so, I mean, but there are like actual recipes for bouquets. Huh. And so, and, and there were flower meaning dictionaries so i'm really not sure if this was just seen as sort of a frivolity of young people or if your parents might know right. or like if the general well-to-do population or the public at the ball i mean presumably your friends like your peers would know mm -hmm. but it, it's not mentioned and i'm guessing there would have been a lot more drama if the older generations did know it seems to me that it would be yeah like a i guess the victorian equivalent of passing notes to some extent well yeah so one of the bouquet recipes is a bouquet for bitter ends um, which is like a final fuck you to <laughs> the end of a friendship or relationship that ended badly. And so here's what I'm thinking. We need yeah. to create paper flowers of all of these things. And people can, people can choose and we can send it to people. Like we can oh bring this God. back, but in like a paper flower version. <laughs> 
I'm in. Because number Um, one, I could benefit from like somebody wearing a flower that says, hey, no, I really do like you. Like that, you know, like that sometimes. That would be helpful. Seriously. Like it. Give me a direct answer. Exactly. Like I, I definitely could get behind that. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I'm serious. I'm serious. Like this is going on my future project list because I think it would be amazing. All right. So what's in this fuck you bouquet <laughs> is um, the following flowers are combined in a bouquet fastened with twine specifically. Okay. So petunias for anger and resentment. Ooh. Datura for deceitful charms, mm. tansy for hostility, thistle for <laughs> misanthropy, <laughs> misanthropy, and wormwood for bitterness. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a specific one for um, appointments that you have forgotten. <laughs> I was going to say, is there one that's like, hey, I think I might be pregnant. <laughs> like, is there like, like, I wonder how specific these things get. Um, there's a bouquet for, um, we are newly in love, but are exclusive now. Oh. Um, <laughs> there's there's no, also. Oops, oops mm-hmm. I missed my period. Is that one? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a bouquet for warning. <laughs> um, but. You could send really, really intricately coded messages. And so, like, there absolutely would be a way, like, I'm, I'm sure I could come up with in this, using the information in this book, a combination of things that would very specifically say, oh, I missed my period. Um, I like this. But, yeah. And so... It's just fascinating to me how how intricate, like, it's not just, oh, this flower means this. Mm-hmm. Like, the flower at the center of the bouquet indicated its relationship, it's like grammar, indicated mm-hmm. its relationship to the flowers around it and the order in which those flowers around it were placed like it's very 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 much like grammar and like you could really get into the weeds on this and by the time I got through like and the um floriography book is largely an overview of direct meanings and where they probably came from. Mm-hmm. It does not go into the the deep intricacies because I think it would almost be impossible. Right. Like by the time I got to there, I was so out of my depth that I was just like, okay, I'm gonna gonna leave it at ribbons. I um, never thought that I would be so fascinated by this. But right? I am like really freaking intrigued and I'm kind of really wanting it to just come back well so the practice isn't completely gone um although full participation and this was near full participation within society at the time everybody was doing it well everybody of 
with the means for flowers. And probably people who were not rich were doing their own version of it as Mm -hmm. well, but we don't. I have not found information on that specifically. Um, But uh, the full participation of the code had largely run its course by the start of World War I, which makes sense Sense, because, you know, busy. And also, muddy fields, bodies, trench warfare. You know, things. Um, But parts of it are... Then you just learned how to make code. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, that's where it went. Yep. They could have knitted flowers. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, I I have, like, this whole jewelry line of um, both, like, witchy-related gems and minerals in specific flower shapes in my head now. Yes. um, For sending coded messages or uh, bespoke messages for like your BFF or whatever. Yes. Don't steal that. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. Public. Bless you. Thank you. Uh, don't steal that public. Nope. Maybe I'll Trademark. do it someday. Yeah. TM. Parts of it still remain in use today. Like you mentioned, roses for love. Yes. Um, I know that lilies color has... for peace. Yes. Mm-hmm. Also... Yeah, red roses specifically for love. Lilies are... Lilies that are often Easter. sent for Easter, but they're also sent for funerals because they're so strongly <laughs> scented. Uh-huh. Correct. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. Yes. Lilies are a funeral flower because they make bodies smell less bad. Very true. And uh, mums are also a flower of condolence, mums and are so that is still a thing. Yeah. That is still like. And they're often planted around graves and things like that. Mm-hmm. My family definitely goes and plants mums at the change of the season and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. our family plot area? I don't know. My family founded the town. It's the whole thing. <laughs> it's confusing. <laughs> um, or we're one of the founding families. So... It's not our family graveyard, but it it may as well be. (laughs) Um, And uh, in a personal connection, my Simon Katz urn, um, and he died a couple of years ago this month, next month, I guess, um, is adorned with watercolor marigolds, um, which... Uh, are often well connected with grief and such but they may be more recognizable to people today as being related to um dia de los muertos Mm -hmm. and um decorations around that particular holiday although that is not what i personally had in mind Mm -hmm. um as that is not my personal heritage it just happened to call to me uh, marigolds are beautiful mm-hmm. but they don't smell that great gosh they smell terrible <laughs> and then there's and then there's carnations which aren't all that attractive but smell so good it's so yeah. weird like you could just wish you could swap them yeah alas 
But anyway, so that is my overview of the Victorian language of flowers, which that is went a lot longer than I expected it to, but there's just so much. It was super fascinating, though. Yeah. Like, like way I, more interesting than you would expect. It did. It, or at I least was, than I expected. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm totally all about coded languages for, like, being yeah. sneaky and fun and... I yep. just love that you can send threats. Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Seriously. That, that, like, that's my favorite. That's my favorite That it thing. isn't just, I pine for you. Yes. And it is, it's, watch your back, bitch. Yeah, there's one that's like, three like, o'clock, bike wrecks, be there. <laughs> I mean, I think you just throw a glove to the ground for that. Right. But or a gauntlet. A gauntlet. Yes. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Although I don't understand why you would throw the gauntlet to the ground. Don't you need that to battle? You would think, but again, I mean, boys. But I've also never no, seen a duel fought with bow and arrow. Duels. Yes. They're a mystery. They are. <laughs> they also cause death. Which brings yeah, us to... they don't. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> I mean... They often cause grievous lingering injury. True, true, true. But if they cause death, it would be a bad way to die. Which brings us to our weekly worst way to die. die. (laughs) Awkward transitions. Yes. Um. So, what's your weekly worst way to die? So, my weekly worst way to die is drowning in all of those wool petticoats while trying to hunt seaweed. Fair. Because, let's face it, wet wool is super heavy. and Also, wool was bathing costumes broadly for, well, until very recently. Like, I World get. War. Like, wet wool is Like, no post-World fun. War II. Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. In fact, I just, I was just listening to a podcast about the, it's an old amusement park and they used to rent wool swimsuits for like 15 cents. And I just I listened like, to that podcast too. <laughs> Imagine that. I, I can't remember now what podcast it was, but I it's definitely morbid. listened to Oh, it yep. was morbid. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and I was You're like. Right. What? Number one, why would you want a wool swimsuit? And mm. number two, why would you want to rent one? <laughs> but I get I, it. Well, I live right down the block. Ooh, I'm going to triangulate myself Uh-oh. right now. Um, I live right down the block from the historic Hotel St. George, which ah. sits above a hot spring. And it used to have a saltwater pool. Ooh. Uh, in it um and the pool became my gym actually nice. weirdly enough um but it, it's you can still see all the balconies and and stuff but um and i feel like i've talked about that before but they used to rent wool swimsuits also there's a lot of renting of wool swimsuits they're just um, scratchy and yeah i don't i, I don't get it what, what I also have a lot to say about Coney Island um, oh, with yeah. regards to that that particular episode of Morbid. Like, 
more information to add. I I have it, but not on this podcast. Nope. Or episode, maybe on this podcast. We could work it in. We'll figure a way. I just want you all to know, listening, in case you've listened to that episode too, um, that sideshows still exist. Mm, yes. And like for for real, for real, like with gimps and sword swallowers and fire eaters and shit. Yep. Blackheads. Is that what we call them? I don't know. Something horrifically problematic. Anyway. <laughs> uh, well, but these are all extremely, extremely skilled performers. Yes. Um, this is not a look at the person Side show, born with a congenital show. defect. Yeah. Yes. This is look at this possibly horrifying skill. Nice. Um, okay. But anyway, that all still exists, and the parks in Coney Island also still exist. And there's the cyclone. I've ridden it. Wow. It's It's the most terrifying thing I have ever been on, and I will never (laughs) get on it again. Wooden roller coaster? Don't do that shit. Wooden roller coaster that old? Don't do that shit. Uh, the Six Flags Great America, yeah, um, in Illinois is the one that we went to, and uh, it had the Eagle, which is a giant wooden roller coaster. I, think I have the, been on that the very biggest roller coaster. or the oldest. There's something. Biggest. There's, there's some biggest. Is it? Yeah, and, and I think tallest going. at the time. Yep, and it was one of the only rides that didn't go like upside down, so it was like your. You're good. You're good well, gateway roller physics. coaster. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Angular momentum is not the friend of a wooden roller coaster. No. 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 Um, so yeah, what's your I've ridden that roller today? coaster. Oh, right. I forgot. <laughs> we were, that was just an entire unnecessary tangent. That um, was my fault. Uh, okay. I don't remember. <laughs> oh, I need to find. forgetfulness it is dying from forgetfulness oh it's because i'm looking at the wrong paper okay um so my (laughs) weekly worst way to die is pissing off a victorian and receiving a poison flower bouquet for my troubles (laughs) that is indeed and I would like to note that this involves time travel on right. their part. So I'm talking about me present day pissing off a Victorian. So you're, the odds are pretty much in your favor on that. Um, that I'm going to piss off a Victorian? No, in your favor, meaning that they're not going to be able to make it back in time period stuff. No, probably not. No, it, it would also be hard to get a bunch of wool petticoats. That is true. That is true. Unless you sewed them, but yeah, no. I mean, even if you did, that's expensive. Super expensive. Wool is not cheap, especially good wool. Oh. Anyway, so <sighs> that that um that exists. It does. Hey, listeners, 
Yeah. E- even though I'm super, <laughs> even though I'm, I'm super fucking awkward. Do you want to be spooky internet friends? You do. You don't yeah, have to put on. You don't have to wear the appropriate flower that indicates yes. You just need to find us at bonesandbobbins.com. Follow us on Instagram at Bones and Bobbins. Like us on Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Or follow us on Twitter. Also at Bones and Bobbins. Or send a photo with your nose gay at your heart. Or not your nose gay. Your, um, <laughs> your tussie. Your tussie mussy. Yes, tussie mussy. At your heart. Yes. And, then, and we'll know. We'll know. And we'll send you and a free seriously, sticker. Seriously. Yeah, if you do that, if you <laughs> will laugh so hard. <laughs> seriously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. And also, while you are sending us your styled tussy-mussy photos. Which we will not um, flip with, upside down. No, with possible veiled threats in them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't forget to rate and review this podcast maybe send the veiled threats to people who aren't doing that yes i don't know um because it pleases the internet gremlins and that is how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us and you know that they want to come hither morbid souls yes hi hi (laughs) and on that note let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. <laughs> oh my gosh. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.